Let's pray as Tim comes to speak. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. Lord, now we say, hallelujah, save us. And one day we'll say, hallelujah, you have done it. We'll be made perfect in holiness, having trusted in you in this life and being perfected through this life. One day you will transform us to be like you in every way and we'll live together with you on a perfect world. Comfort us, encourage us, give us hope through that promise. And may it motivate us to go to those who aren't yet prepared and invite them to come and see you, Jesus. Jesus, help us to be bold in this time of year when people's spiritual windows are open to, to take advantage of the opportunity to invite, to come and see. And Lord, would you move through prayer amongst our congregation during this season to call out to you for your Holy Spirit to be given to those leaders and laborers who will be working this week in preparation of the Christmas Eve services and to work amongst the lost to give them the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for Tim this morning as he comes to speak. We pray that you would gift the Holy Spirit to him and to us who hear that you would take from the things of Jesus and make them real to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Thank you guys for being here. Um, I know you'll be back here in a couple of days. It's raining outside. It was probably tempting to sleep in, but you decided to come here and hear from Jesus. And so... That's really good news. I wish you were all smiling bigger, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, today we're looking at the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. And before we jump into the text, I wanted to quickly review uh, the Fish for Men series that we've been in since early November. So up on the screen is the text that we've been through and what Jesus was doing uh, during those times. <clears throat> and so we started with the calling of the first four disciples. And then we looked at Jesus driving out unclean spirits and then healing Peter's mother-in-law and casting out a demon. And two weeks ago, we heard about Jesus healing a leper. And just last week, Jesus hearing, healing the paralyzed man. Uh, in short, Jesus is doing stuff, right? Um, but as you know, he's not done. Is anybody else uh, hot? Sorry. Whoever made this lectern should have put a, a spot for a... I'm just kidding. I, I made this. <laughs> where, where are we? <laughs> well, today we'll look at Matthew's calling and the subsequent dinner feast uh, that Matthew throws after his life is radically changed. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And if you don't have a Bible... The text will be on the screen. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I want to start with a little bit of background on Matthew, both the book and the author. Remember that the book of Matthew is of particular importance uh, because it's the first book of the New Testament and therefore serves as a gateway between the Old and the New Testaments. And because about 400 years pass between the end of the Old and the New Testament, it seems important that Matthew's text, which is written from a strong Jewish perspective, is first. Now, as the text also says, Matthew was a tax collector, which meant that he essentially worked for Rome. Therefore, he had been considered a traitor by most of his neighbors. The decision to become a tax collector was certainly not an easy one for Matthew. While on the one hand, his income was sizable and reliable, it required him to endure ridicule and rejection. When Matthew made his career choice, he knew he was trading his reputation and his character for financial security. For those reasons, he kept a prudent distance from the synagogue society and made his friends within the sinner caste. All of that is to say that prior to meeting Jesus, Matthew was stuck between two worlds. He was not a Roman, and he was certainly not considered a Jew. He was lonely and alienated and without a home. Matthew is therefore someone that we can all relate to. And I imagine some of you feel like Matthew at times, stuck without a home. Perhaps there's a separation between who you are at work, with who you are in your neighborhood, and maybe even with who you are at your house and who you are at church. So it's easy for us to see how Matthew jumps at the chance to follow Jesus. Surely he had heard of Jesus and the stories of miraculous healings. And depending on which commentary you read, he may have already established a relationship with Jesus. Matthew did not follow a random dude who somehow knew his name. Matthew was a man without a people, yet that day he found his home in Christ. In this five-verse passage, Jesus speaks only two words directly to Matthew, and they are, follow me. And right then, Matthew decides to follow Jesus full-time. And because personalities are different, some of us, me included, if we were in Matthew's shoes, may have needed a little bit more prodding. We would have needed Jesus to say something like, are you coming? And it's this exact question, are you coming, that we've been asking for the last few weeks during Advent. Advent simply means coming. And it's a four-week season of expectant waiting for both, both Jesus' birth and his second coming. And our text today is uniquely connected to Advent as we will unfold. For now, though, we return to the text. Within minutes of following Jesus... Matthew finds himself agreeing to host a dinner party for Jesus. Imagine the pressure of hosting a party for the Savior of the world, by the way. 
If this were the age of cell phones, I'd imagine Matthew would have sent a few texts asking, are you coming? But this party, this grand banquet, as Luke's account puts it, is not just for Jesus, but for, as verse 10 reads, many tax collectors and sinners. So under one roof, we have quite the collection of folks. There's Jesus, perfect and sinless, tax collectors and prostitutes, the first few disciples who are gruff fishermen, and let's just assume that there were some other really interesting characters there as well. Translation, this was an eccentric mess of oddballs and outcasts, an island of misfit toys, if you will. So remember that we are looking at this text from the perspective of hosting a party the way Matthew does. Therefore, what is the practical application of this scene? Could Christians use a little more freak show in our party diet? Sure seems like it. In fact, I submit that Christians need to repent of our inability to party. We must channel our inner beastie boy and fight for our right to party. That got way more laughs than I thought. <laughs> Thank you. So let's start by reclaiming the word party. Now, I've never been confused for the coolest guy in the room, so take this story however you want. But the first time I was asked, do you party? I felt like Woody Harrelson in the classic movie, White Men Can't Jump. And if you've never seen this film, Woody Harrelson's character, Billy Hoyle, hustles basketball players by pretending to be an unathletic and unassuming player. And early in the movie, when we see Billy hustling for the first time, the brash, outspoken Sidney Dean, played by Wesley Snipes, asks Billy, you want to run? And Billy sort of fake ponders the question, pretending he doesn't quite understand, and says in as nerdy a voice as possible, you mean play basketball? And that was me. Do I like to party? It felt like a trick question. Do I like to congregate with other people in a social setting? Sure. But when did a party become booze and drugs and blackouts? And how did we get here? But like so many other things, we have allowed our culture to steal from us. Take Advent, for example. My kids are so excited about Advent. Every day they come up to us, Mom, Dad, can we rest in the expectant waiting of Christ's birth and his second coming? No, they don't say that. Those little boogers, they just want their chocolate. That's all they care about is the chocolate. So anticipating Christ's return has been reduced to eating four-week-old chocolate that sits behind those little doors on the calendar. Also, my wife wanted me to clarify that we do talk about Jesus. We don't just shovel chocolate into our kids' faces. And then there are Georgia fans. Georgia fans love stealing the Gator Chomp. And before it became illegal, Georgia players used to love doing the Gator Chomp. Do you know why? Two reasons. One, they don't have anything other than spiked shoulder pads and go dogs. Sorry. And two, they all secretly want to be Gators, especially those who live in Northeast Florida. So how do we prevent our culture from stealing from us? 
Well, for starters, we stop letting them. Because let's be honest, the quote bad guys aren't the only ones shifting our perspective. Sometimes it's the quote religious people. Look no further than verse 11 of our text. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember that the Pharisees were religious leaders. They knew the law better than anyone. So they had a vested interest in this diverse gathering at Matthew's house. After all, a former sinner had seen the light and become a full-time follower of a prominent rabbi. So when they showed up at this party, uninvited, but very much expected, by the way, there was probably an I-have-to-see-it-to-believe-it factor involved. And make no mistake, they hated what they saw. Now here's where things get really interesting. Verses 12 and 13 read, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' response is beautiful and sarcastic and scathing all at once. First, he's calling the Pharisees the sick ones, although they would never recognize it. Next, he tells the Pharisees, who are regarded as the most learned men, to go and learn something. From the Pharisees' perspective, this is the equivalent of a student stopping the lecture to say the teacher doesn't know what he's talking about. And finally, he uses their own language against them by quoting the book of Hosea. Again, quoting scripture would typically be what the Pharisees would do for others and not the other way around. And the passage Jesus chooses is from Hosea 6.6, and it reads, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the story of Hosea is a fascinating one, where God instructs Hosea to marry Gomer, an unfaithful woman. So the picture is this. Hosea, a faithful man, marrying a prostitute and quite literally restoring her as he brings her, own, brings her home and pays off her lovers. What God wants the people of Israel to know is that despite their unfaithfulness to him, his love for them is boundless. God is the faithful husband to an unfaithful people. This is a strong call for the nation of Israel to repent. And as it extends to today's text, Jesus is asking the Pharisees to examine themselves, to recognize that they are, in fact, the unfaithful ones and not the sinners at the party. But we, the reader, we aren't off the hook either. Yes, we can call the Pharisees fools and mock them, but we would probably be missing the point that we are the spiritual Pharisees, that the marriage of Gomer to Hosea is analogous to the marriage of Jesus to us, his church. So let me say that again, that Jesus is the faithful husband, and we, the church, are his adulterous bride. That's the bad news. Yet despite our unfaithfulness, we can be restored through Jesus the same way Gomer was restored to Hosea. 
as the book of Hosea ends, we get a glimpse of what our future restoration will look like. Chapter 14, the final chapter, ends with a plea to repent, but also a promise of restoration. So the final word in Hosea is one of hope and not destruction. God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like new vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Now that's the good news. Listen, we all want restoration. But what precedes restoration, not only in Hosea, but in so much of the Bible, is repentance. How are you doing with repentance? And where have you been unfaithful to God? I'd encourage you to take a cue from, from Matthew, whose repentance parallels this Old Testament repentance. In 2019 America, phrases such as, do what makes you happy, do you, and no regrets are common refrains on how to live our lives. Repentance and sacrifice are not commonplace. And the phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, likely means very little to most of society. But because Matthew grew up as a Jew with a steady diet of scripture, the Hosea text would have pierced his heart and perhaps confirmed his decision to follow Jesus. Yet Matthew did not stop there. No, his repentance was offered with his entire life. He literally walked away from everything he knew. What do you need to walk away from in your life? Is there an unhealthy relationship or friendship that is keeping you from your relationship from Christ? Are you visiting websites that you're hiding from your spouse? Are you comparing your real life to the Facebook lives of strangers? Husbands, are you planning your date nights with as much creativity as your client dinners? Have you bought into the lie that being too busy for your family makes you a good provider? What priorities have you lost sight of? Jesus wants your life. Jesus didn't gather his disciples and make them recite the sinner's prayer to join his crew. No, Matthew and the rest of the disciples walked out on their lives, their careers, and their families. What do you need to walk out on? And let's not forget that Matthew was probably not warmly welcomed by his new team of disciples. Matthew was the ultimate sellout who turned his back on his Jewish heritage by becoming a tax collector and had likely taxed some of the very disciples he was now teaming up with. Think Steve Spurrier coaching FSU, Thanos joining the Avengers, Blake Shelton judging American Idol, Magic Johnson suiting up for the Celtics, Chip and Joanna Gaines hosting Property Brothers. 
Kanye West crossing over to Christian music. Wait, that happened, sorry. So here's my encouragement. Know who you are in Christ. Like Matthew, find your home, not in your career, but in Jesus, even if you think it's too late. Know the promises and the celebrations of the Bible and repeat them to your friends. Be empowered that Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, a celebration. And he invites you into that same celebratory fellowship. Over the course of our marriage, Kim and I have moved around to a few states in the southeast. And part of the fun involved with moving is seeing how different neighborhoods and schools and churches all have different cultures. And at one of our church stops, we became connected to a pastor who would preach in a somewhat formulaic method. He would start with jokes, he would be maybe even a tad goofy, and he would reel us in. And before we knew it, he would bring his voice down to a whisper talk, and he had a cool southern accent, which I don't have. And it was almost like he was yelling and whispering at the same time. And it would be something that was so convicting that it would just tear us apart emotionally. And we fell for it every single week, or at least I did, just sitting in my chair, laughing like an idiot, and then a few minutes later, hiding my tears from the other men in the room. In one sermon, I was hit with a question that particularly rocked me, and it's pertinent to today. The question was what Jesus asked the man at the pool. Do you want to get well today? Jesus says in our text that he is here to heal the sick, not the healthy. Are you sick? Is your heart sick? Better yet, what is your heart sick with? And do you want to get well today? I do. And I've got to believe that Jesus had a little bit of that personality to him, the ability to make someone feel like a million dollars. And you've been around people like this, where they are completely locked in on you. They're listening to everything that you say, like you are the most important person in the world. And I think Jesus probably did that better than anybody in the world. <laughs> Amen? And he had the ability to be able to reach people individually and then go back and rejoin the party. If we look at the way Jesus interacted with others throughout his life, it's easy to picture him laughing, telling stories, and singing songs with the city's most notorious sinners without stooping to sin or losing his dignity. Jesus lowered himself to enjoy the company of sinners and to celebrate them as friends. He reclined at their table in fellowship, and this was a communal meal of friends. Perhaps most importantly, Jesus didn't attend these parties and then move on to a new town or a new people. He invested in these people and maintained relationships. I think sometimes we view Jesus as this Darth Vader type who commands people 
to follow him or else. But that's just not consistent with Scripture. In fact, when he invited Matthew to follow him, he was probably smiling. So why do we want you to throw parties? Yes, to have fun. But mainly to mimic this relational aspect of Jesus' ministry. To have our neighborhood conversations transition from how's it going to how can I help serve you to what is troubling your soul. Contrary to what we are told, we do not have to choose between faith and fun. Waking up not knowing where you are or how you got there or who the person next to you is, that's not fun, that's emptiness. And going to bed at 8 o'clock on a Friday night while pointing fingers at the heathens who dare be on the streets at night, that's not faith, that's legalism. Jesus doesn't offer us the gift of boredom or mundane rule following. He offers us the abundant life. He wants us to taste and to enjoy life. As it says in Isaiah 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I specifically love the imagery of coming to the waters. I mentioned that Kim and I spent several years away from Florida, and the first year we moved back, I was drawn to the ocean in a way that I'd never been before. When I'd get home from work, I wanted to put my feet in the sand so badly. There was a magnetism pulling me toward the water. And then this year, for the last several months, I've been taking the first Thursday of each month to pray and to be silent, or at least to try to. And the place that I go to do that is Volano Beach, which is a short drive from my house. I go to the ocean to be reminded of God's creation and his power. The ocean, as we all know, is beautiful and expansive and majestic and 800 other adjectives. Yet a month ago, as I'm walking with my prayer journal in hand, being as holy as I know how to, I see a woman who is not my wife lying on a beach towel. And my gut instinct, my fleshly first take, is to look. God's creation is quite literally stretched out for miles in front of me. Yet my eyes are focused elsewhere. Now to the ladies in the room, if you're tired of these fleshly stories from men, I hear you. We as men are tired of telling them. It's a different sermon altogether, but for now, just know that we want to tear these stories from our hearts and our minds just as badly as you want to hide them from your ears. But the point is this. God offers me his divine grace, yet how often do I settle for the flesh? We want restoration and God's glory and celebration, but all too often we settle for the temporal. Instead of racing to our Bibles in the morning, we are racing toward our coffee and our calendars and our iPhones. 
Instead of lying down in green pastures and allowing the good shepherd to refresh our souls, we are speeding toward the siren call of our culture's feeble and always disappointing offerings. If we're honest with ourselves, we are falling short of repentance every day. This week during an Advent reading, I read Luke 1 when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth and tells them that she will give birth to John. Because Elizabeth has been deemed barren and too old for children, Zechariah's response is what mine would be, which is, how can this be? But Elizabeth's response is this, the Lord has done this for me. As we near the end of this Advent season, and as we celebrate the birth of Jesus in just three days, I encourage you to think of what Jesus has done for you. And I don't just mean the happy stuff. No, the Lord has done this for me, the good and the bad. For all the fun and tradition that comes with the Christmas season, it's a holiday that can be painful for so many families. Christmas can often bring with it reminders of sadness and loss and grief or estrangement. I can testify to this myself because I have my own share of struggles and heartbreak this Christmas season. But as I said earlier, we cling to the hope that is Christ and we repeat the Bible's promises to one another. The Bible's promises are wild, guys. They are. One of the things that I've been reminded of this week is, is what an amazing book the Bible is. I mean, truly, it's unbelievable. Scripture leads to Scripture. The New Testament intertwines with the Old Testament in a way that you would just never recognize, and it's all one beautiful story. It's an amazing text. And all week, I felt like Nick Cage searching for the Christian national treasure. And as I was searching for a way to end with a message of hope, my studies took me from a five-verse text that quotes Hosea all the way back full circle to Hosea again. And so I'll close with one final promise from Hosea, who's no stranger to heartbreak and suffering, by the way. In Hosea 2.15, it reads, there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. So here's the really cool part. The valley of Acre was associated with disgrace and punishment, which Israel encountered on their first entrance into Palestine. And years later, after bondage and captivity were erased, it was then regarded as the threshold of a blessed life. So the sorrowful associations of the past were to be illuminated with happy anticipation. The sorrow Jesus encountered on the cross was erased by his resurrection, and now he stands as our door of hope into eternal life. Use that hope to fuel your upcoming week. And as our action step says, invite, bring, and welcome. 
Invite someone into the abundant life that Christ offers us. Bring your own baggage to the feet of Jesus and offer repentance to our gracious God. Welcome a damaged or broken relationship back into your life. Be assured, church, in just three days, and then again in the time only he knows, Jesus is coming. And just as he did with Matthew, Christ is calling you to follow him. Are you coming? Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for this morning, for this collection of people um, that we can gather and be encouraged by your word. God, you know my heart and you know that I fight insecurities all the time. And so more than anything, God, I want our people to leave here with the words of Jesus, which are refreshing to our soul. And so I pray over the next few hour, few days, excuse me, that we would anticipate your coming and long for your second coming. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.